welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, we are joined again by Connor Habib. You might recall Connor's previous appearance on this show when we talked about Joy Williams' novel Breaking and Entering. You might have heard J.F. and me, or any number of Weirdosphere intellectuals, turn up on his podcast, Against Everyone with Connor Habib, which I've always considered a spiritual sibling to Weird Studies. Or you might have read Connor's widely praised debut novel, Hawk Mountain, or attended one of his classes or live events, or read some of his sharp-eyed writings on society, culture, and politics. Connor is a man of many talents. As he says, he is the only person who has ever won awards for writing, teaching, and porn. In the intro for the show we did with him on Breaking and Entering, I borrowed Henry Miller's line about how listening to Alexander Scriabin's poem of ecstasy is like taking a bath in ice, cocaine, and rainbows, because that's what it's like to talk to Connor. And it's also a good description of what it's like to watch Clive Barker's 1987 horror film Hellraiser, and to read the novella on which the film was based, The Hellbound Heart. These two texts tell the story of a magical puzzle box that opens the path to a hell realm of unimaginable pleasures and tortures, unimaginable in part because they occur at a zero point where human distinctions between pleasure and torture collapse entirely. Connor, J.F., and I jumped into our discussion with very little in the way of preamble, so let me quickly summarize the story told by Hellraiser and the Hellbound Heart. Frank Cotton is a corrupt sensualist who is sodden and jaded by the pleasures he has chased all his life. He obtains a magical puzzle box which, it is said, can open a portal to a dimension beyond our own, where the bold adventurer can enjoy pleasures beyond our earthly ken. Frank's problem is that he lacks imagination. On opening the box, he expects to find a mere enhancement of the sexual delights he has known but too late he realizes that the monstrous beings from this other dimension, the Cenobites, understand pleasure in ways completely alien to humans, and they drag Frank away to perform Baroque outrages upon his flesh. But he leaves a trace of himself behind in the room of his grandmother's abandoned house where he solved the puzzle box. When his brother moves into that house— Picking his way through discarded religious statuary with his cold-hearted wife, Julia, an accident leaves blood for Frank's trace to feed upon, and it gathers itself into a dripping horror of flensed meat. Julia had slept with Frank a week before her wedding and has been erotically obsessed with him ever since. So when she discovers Frank's animate remains, she agrees to help him remake his body She lures men into Frank's room and kills them so Frank can leech out their blood and vitality. The hero of this story is Kirsty, who in the novella is a friend of Frank's brother, Rory, 
and in the film is Rory's daughter, though Rory is called Larry in the film for whatever reason. Kirsty figures out what's going on and escapes by the skin of her teeth, ending up in the hospital with the puzzle box, which she solves. Then the Cenobites come to take her. But Kirsty saves herself by promising to lead them to Frank, whose escape has gone unnoticed. She returns to the house to discover that Frank has completed his resurrection by killing his brother and wearing his skin. Frank accidentally kills Julia in the ensuing fight. When Frank is about to kill Kirsty, he gives himself away to the Cenobites and is torn to pieces. In the film, the box is rescued from destruction by a mysterious cricket-eating vagrant who turns into a winged beast. The film ends as it began, with the same shady merchant in the same low dive selling the box to some new victim. In the novella, Kirsty finds that she has been made the custodian of the box. Either way, we know that the box will keep turning up, like the proverbial bad penny. And indeed, there were sequels, both novels and films. But in this episode, we stay close to Barker's original inspiration. Right about now, I should be giving you my standard Patreon pitch. If I did, I would be reminding you of how we don't run ads because we want there to be a lamppost in this world that has not yet been pissed on by our corporate overlords. I would probably also say that even if you don't care whether we run ads or not, the podcasting and writing we're doing behind the paywall is as good as anything we're doing in the flagship show, and if you're not signing up, you're missing out. I would doubtless also say something about the vibrant intellectual community that lies behind the paywall. But this week I have something new to sweeten the pot. We're adding a new Patreon tier, the $9 All the Product You Have Coming tier which allows you to hang out with me, JF, and other friendly freaks on Zoom twice each month. This tier also includes all the writing and podcasting from the $3 and $6 tiers, hence the name. Finally, you can have all the product you have coming, and that's the closest thing to Nirvana as exists in our modern world. We will be holding our hangouts at times that will permit listeners from both sides of the Atlantic to join us, and we hope you will consider becoming one of them. One of us, I should say. One of us. One of us. One of us. One of us. Clive Barker is a pretty huge part of my imagination, his work and just who he is in the world or has been um, since I was very young. And I've been longing to have a conversation about something he's done. I did one episode of another podcast called Juvenalia, where we talked about just Clive Barker in general, but they were all really unfamiliar with him. So I wanted to really go deep into one thing with him. And my relationship with him has deepened a bit over time. I guess 
I'll just tell the story at the top. Although I was wondering if I would tell this at all because I felt a little not embarrassed. Like I'm actually very proud of this, but um, I didn't want to sound like I was just name dropping, but it's quite relevant. (laughs) So please. Yeah. So a weird studies exclusive, a weird studies exclusive. (laughs) So I, you know, when I was a kid, I would make book covers for horror novels that I never wrote. And they would be all about all sorts of things. But one of the things I would do, I would draw the cover and then I would draw the back cover and I would come up with blurbs from writers that I loved because I saw on the fantasy and horror novels that I was reading that those had blurbs from writers. So I'd use real writers. And one of the ones that I'd always put on the back was some fake blurb by Clive Barker. (laughs) When I wrote Hawk Mountain, I had had like one or two, maybe a few emails back and forth with Clive who had sent me an email kind of out of the blue, which was unreal. And then I, I had a novel sent to him, you know, just thinking it would be so cool if he read it. And he sent me a really long blurb. He actually asked if he could call me. And then we talked on the phone. Mm. I mean, he was like, can I call you? And I was like, Fuck yes, <laughs> you know, cause he was so, he's just, you know, he, he's so wonderful and supportive to so many creative people, but it was just, you know, this lifelong thing. And so he wrote this long blurb for me, which I can share or not, but what it turned into after some editing became the blurb on the cover of my first novel <laughs> all those right. years later, as if I would sort of, you know, remembered the future Hmm. That Hawk Mountain is a dark, bleak adrenaline rush, which is a great compliment. But for me, it was so important because uh, his work is always so important because it's queer, it's sexual, it's horrific. It doesn't pull any punches, but also it's incredibly imaginative. It's wild sometimes. I mean, to the point where you know, you really feel like you're encountering someone that has actually walked through the spiritual realms in a really like lucid way, in a way that's brave and unafraid. And I've always felt like that about his stuff. And I maybe as we go on, I want to talk about sort of differences between him and Stephen King a little bit, because they're kind of the two big names in horror. But the central thing for him aside from maybe Candyman, is really this hellraiser series that's what people know and so i wanted to give it real attention because it's like it comes out in 1987 what else comes out in 1987 the lost boys nightmare on elm street 3 monster squad prince of darkness predator (laughs) evil dead 2 the hidden the curse the gate i mean and a lot of these movies are very funny or they're just these kind of typical horror movies that have a central male figure. And this was just something, you know, it did eventually become pinup, but this was just something completely different. And I think in that era, it was not really understood how different and how strange they, this movie yeah. is. Back in 1987, when it came out, I thought it, it was earlier than that. So I was 10, which makes sense. I saw the advertisement for it in the newspaper and it scared the hell out of me the tagline was they'll tear your soul apart and it just freaked me out and i wouldn't watch it it was probably just a period of like i did watch it when it came out on on vhs 
And the first time I watched it, I couldn't finish it. It was too real. There's something too real about the horror that he's showing us in that film that I found um, too hard to take the first time. And I watched it again. I think I watched it through when I was about 13. But I just want to kind of um, relate here to you, Connor, because when I was a kid at that age, I would, on my my school binders, I would always write the names of writers and musicians and people that I loved. So I had like, and it's most of them now are quite forgettable. Like I had Piers Anthony. I remember oh, on my well, binder. Hey, I remember him. Yeah. <laughs> bon Jovi was there, you know, but also, you know, Black Sabbath. Uh, but the name of Clive Barker, I think, was always there every year on each binder. I love this writer and I appreciate him more now than I ever have. I really do think he blazed the trail for a lot of what the writers who then came up through mostly through comics, British comics, like people like um, Neil Gaiman, for example. You can see that Clive Barker opened a space for a kind of fantasy horror that was deeply, deeply indebted to the whole tradition of fantasy in literature. Like he's drawing from a really, really deep well. That's the first thing that strikes me when I read Clive Barker and compare him to Stephen King. And I love Stephen King. But in Clive Barker, there's a literary sensibility that goes so deep. And you're right. He seems to be participating in an old imaginative tradition of which literature is just kind of a side effect. There's something more important going on in what Clive Barker is doing. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised that he would have been one of your heroes. And I can only imagine the feeling of, uh, I don't know, accomplishment that would come with getting that blurb, suddenly having it materialize because he's so fundamental and such a huge name. And I can see, having read your excellent, excellent novel, Hawk Mountain, that I can see how you yourself are kind of participating in, in what Clive Barker has made available to modern horror writers. One question I have is, a moment ago, you said that Clive Barker is important to you, among other reasons, for being a queer writer. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what it would be or what it is to be a queer horror writer, partly because the word queer has undergone a certain inflation of use in recent years. And I'm not saying that to you know make any kind of political statement, but simply a lot of people use queer as a kind of catch-all identity that they associate with themselves to a degree that removes queerness from a specifically sexual connotation, from a, a connotation of sexuality. And Often, there seems to be a kind of bleed over between the categories of queerness and weirdness. And indeed, you know, I have said on this show, when we talk about weirding, it's sort of by analogy with or modeled on the gesture of queering. And when I've talked about that, I've sort of used as an example of queering the way, for instance, certain perceptual strategies around, say, Busby Berkeley musicals have a way of taking the sort of compulsory heterosexuality of old-time Hollywood musicals and irradiating their sexual politics in such a way that they turn into something rather different. And I'm wondering if this is a metaphor or rather an analogy between these two terms, or if we are actually talking about a continuum of notions, notions that while conceptually distinct, nevertheless do bleed into one another. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, first of all, I'll just say that 
I think, unfortunately, you know, whereas queer really used to designate some kind of radical political positioning, it's mostly become an ornamental aesthetic now. That is not to say that people who are queer are not, or call themselves queer, are not finding deep strength in that term or looking into that history or anything like that. It's, it's none of that. It's just that, like so many things, like certain forms of feminism, like certain forms of Marxism, whatever, it's just been co-opted. It's been constrained. It's been overtaken by its enemies in a way. It's been diluted. And so when I say it, I'm not really aligning it with the way that a lot of what people might say queer is like plays out now. For me, the value was being in a small town and, you know, Clyde Barker also grew up, I think he's half Irish and he's half Italian and I'm half Irish and half Syrian. And he grew up in a fairly conservative place and, you know, ends up moving to LA and having this yeah, <laughs> crazy other life. I found there someone that was completely unafraid to write about desire, to write about sex as part of the human condition, but also the horrific and most importantly, probably imaginative condition to say in ways that, you know, maybe some other writers like Susan Sontag and had echoed around similar time frame, But before that, we could talk about Bataille or maybe some other people that the imagination is pornographic and it's pornographic in a lot of ways. And we have to, you know, there's a lot to talk about what we might mean by pornography, but we mm. can just leave it there and just say, that's the gist. You know, he gave an interview once where <laughs> I think there'll be maybe a few moments where we talk about him and Stephen King together. And I also really love Stephen King, but these two big names in horror in some ways couldn't be more different. And he said, you know, Stephen King always writes about sex almost as if he's embarrassed when it shows up. I can't even see why you would feel that way. Like it's mm -hmm. part of these stories, blood, obviously the body, obviously desire all that. And when you decide to include that in the story, for me, it just made it more honest. There were some stories in books of blood that had gay characters and of course, that was really important to me too, and really shocking when I, you know, growing up in small town Pennsylvania and reading, particularly his incredible, maybe one of his best stories in the hills, the cities, um, about these two guys traveling through, I think, Eastern Europe and coming across something horrifying. I won't spoil it for anybody. It's just an incredible story, but they have sex in the grass. And I, of course, yeah, I'm electrified by that as a kid, you know, like, Finally, someone's showing the thing that I'm thinking, but it's not about representation so much as it is a certain kind of lens that allows for the intensity of desire and sex to show up in the story. Um, I mean, it shows, it's like, I mentioned Nightmare on Elm Street before. It's like, if you watch Nightmare on Elm Street, there's a reproduction of desire there. Like Freddie's always sort of sexually taunting his victims and all that kind of stuff. But it, <laughs> that's not really aligned with desire and sexuality and eroticism in the same way. It's just a threat. That's all it is. Yeah. It's just a threat. The longing's not there. You get the sense that mm. Freddie's doing it because it terrifies his victims. What he desires is basically to kill these people. 
But what's so powerful about Clive Barker, especially the Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser, which we're discussing today, is that it really does come very close to that zone where desire and terror kind of start to intermingle. What I hear from what you're saying is that what makes a queer writer or perhaps a good weird writer is not so much something that such writers do, like that they put that type of stuff in their stories, but rather a capacity to refrain from doing certain things. For example, projecting moral inhibition or inhibitions or morality into the story, allowing the story or the imaginative material to reveal itself in its fullness so that you can be honest, so that you can be honest about your desires. And so when, when you say that all art is pornographic, that's kind of what I'm hearing is that great art is honest about realities which we ordinarily like to kind of compartmentalize in very specific ways and pre-digest in other ways and, and have opinions about before they fully reveal themselves. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, I think that part of that, and just to be clear, I've seen that the imagination is pornographic, not that all art right, is right, necessarily right. pornographic, but meaning like our imagination works through revealing what our points of emphasis are for us, what arouses us and what stirs us and what connects to us. And so, you know, in some ways it's just psychoanalytic 101 kind of stuff where it's like, if you're fantasizing about something, there's an erotic draw there. That's a fantasy that really is a fantasy. And so yeah. when we talk about fantasy writing, you know, but what Clyde Barker is doing and what some, a lot of other, Angela Carter is another really good one to bring in. And she actually, I think, has some stylistic similarities to Clyde Barker. They're recognizing that when you see something, when a character sees something, when you decide to include it, your eye or your imagination has been drawn to it. You've been pulled to express this thing. And that's no coincidence. In fact, it's an expression of this attractive, desiring nexus of your own being. And so much so that you can't even contain it, that it has to be expressed, that it has to reveal itself. Mm. And I find that really compelling when someone knows that and they work with it. Lots of people work with it without knowing it. And that could be really satisfying too. But when someone knows it and works with it and gets it right, it's pretty intense. That's a very interesting way of framing it. It reveals desire as a thing that works against mere representation. Like I'm maybe because you mentioned Susan Sontag and Sontag among other things, wrote essays on happenings, like the Alan Caprow happening, that genre of art, not art object, but art event, particularly found in the 60s and 70s. It's a kind of art that's anti-representational in the sense that when, for example, Caprow would stage the building of a house made entirely out of blocks of ice next to an LA freeway, I think that was one of his happenings such that throughout the day people are driving by this steadily melting edifice of ice and that's it's not so much the edifice it's that process and the lives that it accidentally encounters and i could probably come up with better examples than that from caprov's uh, oeuvre of happenings but like regardless we find ourselves talking about a kind of art that it doesn't play according to the rules we very often think art does, which is that art will 
take something from reality and copy it and put it in front of us, represent it so that we see this kind of double of reality. What Capra was interested in is not a double of reality, but reality itself. And there's something about desire that has this weird way of poking through the various membranes that we might set up between ourselves and objects of desire, where an object of desire, something you desire, calls to you in a way that punctures a lot of the sort of, again, as I say, membranes that we set up between ourselves and the world, but also thinking about like representing desire. Like our reaction is not as to a copy of something, but of a thing itself. Like that is a, not expressing this at all well. I don't know. Does this, does this make any sense? Because I feel like I got, I got nine tenths of the way to my point And then I'm like, wait a minute. Is this just bullshit? What this I'm saying? Feels, it feels, no, it feels like exactly what Deleuze is on about in this chapter on art in what is philosophy, which is that. Art gives us the affect, but the affect, for example, the cutting effect of a knife is shared between that which is cutting and that which is cut. So like the art shows you not just the object of desire, but the object of desire desired, it, it wrapped up in the desire so that you're completely in it too. It's like a breakdown of the subject-object divide. At least that's one way of of interpreting, I, I guessing about the final tenth, the final <laughs> tenth of what you were going to say. I'm not sure if that's where you were going, but that's what I'm hearing. And I, I totally agree. Like a symbol is different from a sign precisely because it involves the act of perceiving it. It's part of it, you know, and it's so you can't separate you can't have that clean membrane, as you say, between subject and object such that we can then say, well, I'm imagining something, but it has nothing to do with me. You know, like or it was Stephen King, they were, you were saying that he writes about sex as though he's embarrassed, as though it's something apart from him. And I don't want to judge Stephen King's depiction. I haven't paid too much attention to Stephen King's depictions of sex, but from what you're saying, there's a tendency to like separate it, to have it be its own thing, to isolate it. Whereas when Clive Barker, he allows his consciousness as an artist or the imagination to include and, and, and without judgment, right? Without ju include the full reality, without implicitly judging any aspect of it and allowing the self to enter into the object in a weird way. Yeah, I mean, and the self to enter into the object is like a great description of what we're talking about. Just the first line of the Hellbound Heart is, so intent was Frank upon solving the puzzle of Lamarckin's box that he didn't hear the great bell begin to ring. In some ways, what I hear you saying, Phil, and I, I'm not just trying to fill in the blanks for you, like it actually sounded exactly right, <laughs> was that you know, our desires and our desirous actions resonate on multiple levels at once. And so if you picture this person, you know, Frank trying to solve this box and then the bell is ringing at once, this spiritual happening and the puzzle and the hands and the desire, they're all sort of layered. And then we have a puncture. And I'm glad you brought up Deleuze because I was going to bring him and Guattari up quite a bit as we move on with this lines of flight concept where even one of the Cenobites in the novel says the box is a means to break the surface of the real. Oh, that's right. And so yeah. there is 
an exacerbation of desire to the point that it pierces, as you were saying, um, it pierces the synchrony of all these sort of like levels of desire. There's a way to take it even further where suddenly it's punctured and you can see them all. They bleed out and leak into each other. Right. And, um, Part of me just wanted to read the entire first chapter on this episode because it's so it's so good. Yeah, it's so good. But it starts with him, you know, like he solves the box and the Cenobites come. Then he's flooded with all his senses, like all yeah. the sensory input comes in and it's overwhelming sight and sound and everything and all his the movements of his organs and everything are so intensified. And he's like, please, you know, in some ways, let it end. And then when it ends, the Cenobite says, now we can begin. Yeah. And so <laughs> we, you would think that that would be it. But in fact, that's just the start. The palate cleanser. Yeah. <laughs> it's an amuse-bouche before we get to the main course, which Clive Barker very wisely keeps off screen because there's no real describing I guess, some of the depths to which uh, Frank is taken by the Cenobites. We have such sights to show you. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. You know, it's interesting because I have a condition that some people call hyperacusis. And basically what hyperacusis is, it's rare and weird and people experience it differently. But I have attacks of it and then I just have this sort of low key level of it happening all the time. I have super hearing in a way. I can hear electrical outlets. Like if I put my ear close to one, I can hear it. I can like certain noises are extremely painful for me all the time, certain hums. But when I have an attack, it's really wild. Uh, the first time I ever had hyperacusis, I was standing in my backyard and I heard and I thought it was a helicopter, but it was a moth um, mm. flying near me. And then I could hear oh. the people in my, like in the house next door talking. And I went to the doctors and they were like, yeah, you're crazy. And I was like, please just put me somewhere quiet. And every once in a while, these attacks will happen and they're, they're really terrible. And it, the amplification of the senses, the, the losing of the limit that we're used to is extremely painful. And yet every time something like that is depicted in a movie or whatever, it's always a superpower. You know, it's always like, oh, he can see far. He can hear everything. It's a superpower. Wouldn't that be cool? But as this book and the movie demonstrate, when you seek the amplification of just who you are to be, it's extremely, extreme. it can be extremely painful. Wow. Another wow. parallel with Deleuze, Deleuze had very long nails and people thought it was an eccentricity, but in fact, it's because his sense of touch was so hyper-developed that he couldn't touch paper with his fingers. He had to use his claw-like nails. Oh. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't know that about you, but it's not hard to imagine how that sort of hypersensitivity would quickly become overwhelming, obviously, and that the inner editor that we all have that tells us which sounds are important, which can be safely ignored, is there for reasons, right? But in a sense, what I'm seeing here is that what happens to Frank at the beginning of the novel 
because it's not depicted that way in the film. The film stays, it's much more about flesh and what can be visually given to us. But that early scene with Frank, when his senses are opened, he essentially falls into what Bergson might call durée, like pure duration, like the, his senses being fully open. There is no intellect there guiding or not, no even unconscious guiding him to what matters. It's all at once. Everything's coming in at once. And reality reveals itself to be a profoundly psychedelic phantasmagoria that is going at infinite speed at every moment and overwhelming the body. And the, again, there's delusion undertones. And like the body is basically a crystal whose form is assured by a kind of intense cosmic pressure that's going on at every moment. And if we only became aware of the tremendous struggle that we as organisms are involved in from second to second, just to stay together, just to hold together as organisms, we would probably lose our minds, you know? And that's essentially the intro to Frank's initiation into, the lead Cenobite says in the film, his initiation into the further regions of experience. I love that phrase. But yeah, you're right. That first chapter is amazing. I mean, in fact, again, every time I read Barker, I'm struck by the the shamelessly purple and beautiful and decadent prose, you know, and the way that he, with Hellraiser, both, uh, especially in the book, he gives us a world that is shot through with desire. It's not just Frank desiring. It's not just Julia desiring. It's everything in this world desires. For instance, he has a chapter that opens with the seasons long for each other, like men and women, in order that they be cured of their excesses. I just love that. Yeah. that. I mean, I think that that's one of the most striking things about his writing. And when he's at his best, it is intoxicating. Is this, it's like, you know, the Sturm und Drang movement, the 18th century movement that Goethe and a bunch of other writers were part of, where the idea was to write or paint with such intensity, romantic excessiveness of style that you could defy the way people saw reality or encountered this sort of banal flat surface of reality. And so you're right. It's like that longing, that achingness, again, Angela Carter's, I think another good example, but that longing and achingness is found in the style. And that's so rare. It's not in all of his books. Some of his books are, you know, much more straightforward in plainer language, but, and, and sometimes really fittingly so. But like this one, you just really feel it. It's dripping. I mean, it is bloody, you know, it's corporeal in a sense. Yeah. I'm going to take a couple of steps back. I said before, I was framing this in terms of one of my own sort of philosophical preoccupations, which is representation and its abrogation in certain forms of art that are trying to get us beyond merely this kind of distanced way of apprehending a piece of art, right? But I'm going to take a step back and say, really, something that I think is at work in both the novel and the film, both Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser, is a fiction as a contrivance for the puncturing of various membranes, boundaries, surfaces. Connor, when you were quoting one of the Cenobites saying that the box is a means for, what, what's the line again? Uh, the box is a means to break the surface of the real. I love that so much because the mental image I have is of a bucket or a, a cup filled to the brim 
with water to the point that you see the meniscus bulging up above the top. And one last drop breaks that tension. What's holding it together is tension, a kind of equipoise of tensions and forces. And you break that and you watch everything start to slop over and spill. The penetration of ourselves by films and novels. Okay, I'm going to try and take another stab at what I was saying before. One of my favorite Onion headlines is ironic porn purchase leads to unironic ejaculation. (laughs) (laughs) Which I find amusing for multiple reasons. It tells an entire story. It has a whole little story spring-loaded into it. Guy decides to buy a porno video or magazine and brings it home and is telling himself and any of his friends who happen to be with him, oh, wouldn't this be funny to watch? This is going to be a scream. And all of that is a membrane, a boundary that you're putting between yourself and an object in the world. You're getting involved with this object to the extent that you're buying it and to the extent that you're bringing it home. But then the nature of that object is it calls forth a desiring response from the guy who bought it. And there's no irony possible in that desiring response. The subsequent masturbation is a thing that happens in consequence of this expressive object that this guy has brought into his life. It's often said that horror shares something with pornography insofar as it aims at eliciting a physical response. And... I suppose you could say, therefore, that every horror film is about this kind of pricking of a surface tension of the self, breaking that surface tension such that we start slopping over, we become incontinent, that the shape of our self begins to change a little bit. We're no longer in this distanced relationship between ourselves and a represented object that can't touch us, can't hurt us, can't meaningfully interact with us. And then to get back to what you were saying, JF, if we're thinking of the self as a kind of crystal formed at the meeting point of multiple forces, horror, like pornography, is one of those things that can allow for a shift in those forces and therefore a shift in the self from which point of view it's extremely powerful and a little risky, a little dangerous because you're playing with live ammo. Yeah. The onion headline could have worked with horror too. It would have been less funny, but ironic horror purchase leads to unironic scream yes um, is like that's the classic thing right oh let's watch this uh, we were having a slumber party we're going to watch nightmare on elm street and it's going to be funny and and stupid and and the next thing you know everybody's huddled together their teeth chattering and I, I like your way of framing it of making us aware of more of the forces that are active you know it, it calls attention to the shift in the self is like a shift in awareness to a certain extent where we become aware of the distributed nature of the self and we become aware of the forces that shoot through it 
One way you can tell that something like that is going on is how angry it makes people. Like I'm always struck by when you look at classic horror films and you go to the Wikipedia entry, like The Thing is a classic example of this, but I think it's also true of Hellraiser. Any number of people who, when they are hit with an original work of horror, will get pissed off and find ways of saying like, oh, this is just crass exploitation, or this is so unoriginal, I've seen it a million times, and blah, blah, blah. Like, there's a certain kind of bad faith that often enters into people's reaction to this kind of surface tension pricking artwork. There's a sense that you get from reading a lot of the critical reception of a classic film, a film that's had some decades now to build up a critical vocabulary around it. You get the sense that like often the shape of that, the way a horror film comes in, it first emerges as a kind of almost blunt force trauma as it just punches its way through various membranes and boundaries and then sort of mellows into a um, respectable middle age as we all learn to absorb the blow. No, there's just so much that both you guys said. I mean, I think one, I will remember your description of the meniscus because it's such an unlikely way to picture a puncture that the puncture of the surface from an extra drop causes things to spill over rather than a knife going into a body or whatever. One of the reasons why I really like it is it reminds me of Gail Rubin writing about sex, feminism, Marxism, women, and just saying, look, feminism and Marxism are both like incapable of dealing with sex. Why do we keep pretending that they can handle it? It spills out over their frameworks. And like the idea that somehow it should be, you know, like ideas of sex should be somehow all solved by feminism or Marxism or whatever it is, it's just not going to happen. You know, and she says that as a feminist and someone who's very, at least has Marxist, deep Marxist affinity. So what I'm thinking of that spilling over then, that adding and puncturing and spilling over something that can't be contained. And I'm also thinking about Horror movies and pornography are both completely critically panned, right? (laughs) One is obviously more regulated than the other, but horror movies are also highly regulated and yet hugely consumed and loved by people because they represent some kind of compromised solution to a real longing and despite their popularity are still deeply stigmatized. And also they rely on each other in a lot of ways. There's sort of overlapping theme works as well. And part of it is just people say, oh, well, if you're only just getting one response, in this case with horror, you know, well, you're only just scaring people. Um, so, you know, like, what? <laughs> what is that? You know, I mean, it's just yeah. like, we think of movies or artworks that, bring out one emotion in people and they don't do it as successfully as a lot of horror movies scare the shit out of people or whatever. I mean, I think that's a problem, but then when you have a horror movie like Hellraiser, which is not necessarily scary, uh, you know, aside from JF's well, 
10 year old yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm not scared anymore I... <laughs> it does something else and then people are like well it's not scary yeah exactly yeah yeah you can't win you you really you really can't win um it it's not that it has this or that you know like it's trying to elicit this or that emotion it's that people can't handle that spilling over yes exactly right they can't contend with the fact that it can't be contained as, again, as far as Clyde Barker goes, <laughs> you just sort of in reference to Stephen King again, it's like you just take Stephen King's most famous book probably is it. The main scary figure in that is Pennywise. But Pennywise isn't scary because people are like, holy shit, Pennywise is going to get me. They're like, fuck, that makes clowns scary. Right. It's like mm-hmm. the same thing. Cujo makes dogs scary. Um it breaks the frame. It starts to break out of the frame that we've prepared for it. All of a sudden, I'm scared of dogs. All of a sudden, I'm scared of clowns. But see, that's a different move than Clyde Barker's move, right? Clyde Barker's move is, I'm actually going to give you a monster that reflects your longing, whether it's the Cenobites or Candyman calling him into being by saying his name in the mirror. I'm not going to re-enchant, in a sense, even though I don't like that term, but re-enchant the world outside of you by overlaying how it could be horrific. I'm actually going to show you how horrifying your inner world is. Mm. And that's why the Cenobites or Candyman are singularly scary and they're memorable villains in a way that the villains in Stephen King's books are not. kind of um, structural or narrative terms, the villains in Clive Barker never really act like villains. You know, like you could easily make the argument that the Cenobites are the good guys in Hellraiser. The villain is Frank. I really appreciate what you're saying here, the difference between Barker and King on this particular point, that what King is doing is reversing. He's saying, oh yeah, clowns are funny. What about seeing a clown at midnight in an alleyway? Would that be funny? I don't think so. Same figure. Um, but but it, so you're changing the context. What you're saying is that the shift happens around the object, recontextualizes the object such that it manifests a different side. And I think there's value in that move, certainly. There's value in the fact that it's breaking the frame, as Phil was saying. But what Clive Barker is doing with Hellraiser, you said it perfectly, it's that he makes you become aware of your 
own desire. So it's almost like you become the object. I don't know how to phrase it better than you did. Um, this touches on the one little number that I brought with me today, which is uh, a reading of The Sound of Music, which I think is relevant to this film. Because I think if you watch the film or you read the novella, you'll notice there is a kind of um, pedal tone of Christianity running through it. Like there's mentions, there are biblical references, like scriptural references in the dialogue. Uh, in the film, you see a lot of Catholic paraphernalia around the house, some of which is fictitious. Like there's an actual statue of Salome with the head of John the Baptist. I don't think many Catholics have that at home. Um, and a blindfolded monk. You just see it for a second. It's on the trash heap that Christie walks by. And so many Jesuses with the flayed heart. Yeah. Well, that's what the sacred heart is. It's the sacred heart is Jesus exposing his heart, which is wrapped in thorns. It's yeah. it's a, It's an image of horror. It's just that we've metabolized it, or at least those of us who aren't evangelicals for whom the experience of entering a Catholic church must be close to horror, I'm sure. But like, if you're raised Catholic like I was, I mean, I grew up with these images, but there was always that time. I remember this babysitter I had, this um, old Quebecois woman who was just amazing. She was filled with stories of werewolves and all kinds of stuff that she said happened in her hometown up in Northern Quebec. She was a really interesting person, but she had a lot of this kind of Catholic paraphernalia around her house, uh, including a painting of Jesus exposing the sacred heart. And it, uh, I remember seeing it and it suddenly like seeing it for the first time again and being quite freaked out by the realness of it. The heart is not depicted as a kind of like Valentine's day heart. It looks like a human heart. And I find that if there is a reversal going on, if Clive Barker is doing something similar to King, albeit in a totally different register, it has to do with showing us the underside of a kind of Catholicity that's implicit in the film. And uh, Zizek reads The Sound of Music in the same way, right? That famous scene, Climb Every Mountain, where uh, Maria, the initiate nun, she was sent off to the Von Trapp family to take care of the kids. And she fell in love with the Baron Von Trapp. She returns to the convent and tells Mother Superior, you got to take me back. She can't handle the sexual desire that she's feeling. And it's Slavoj Zizek's reading. And uh, it's, it's from his film, um, The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, I believe. I'll just read the, the, the relevant bit. He says in the narration... We all know it's the story of a nun who is too alive with too much energy, ultimately sexual energy, to be constrained to the role of a nun. So the mother superior sends her to the Von Trapp family where she takes care of the children and at the same time, of course, falls in love with the Baron Von Trapp. And Maria gets too disturbed by it. She cannot control it. She returns to the convent. And then Zizek has an interesting aside. He says, no wonder that in the old communist Yugoslavia, where I saw this film for the first time, exactly this scene or more precisely, the song that follows, Climb Every Mountain, this strange hedonist advice from the Mother Superior, go back, seduce the guy, follow this path, do not betray your desire, namely the song which begins with Climb Every Mountain, that song which is almost an embarrassing display and affirmation of desire, those three minutes were censored. I think the censor was a very intelligent man, Zizek says. He knew, as an atheist communist, where the power of attraction of Catholic religion resides. He says, if you read intelligent Catholic propagandists, and if you really try to discern, what deal are they offering you? It's not to prohibit, in this case, sexual pleasures. It's a much more cynical contract, as it were, 
between the church as an institution and the believer troubled with, in this case, sexual desire. It is this hidden, obscene permission that you get. You are covered by the big other. You can do whatever you want. Enjoy. This obscene contract does not belong to Christianity as such. It belongs to the Catholic Church as an institution. It is the logic of institution at its purest. This is, again, a key to the functioning of ideology. Not only the explicit message, renounce, suffer, and so on, but the true hidden message, pretend to renounce and you can get it all. (laughs) And despite his, I think, overly Lacanian and frankly cynical, I think he's the cynic here, uh, appreciation of certain traditions, he is saying something true about religious traditions, about moral prohibitions as they manifest in a spiritual practice, is that they also affirm that which they then proscribe. There's two things going on. You'll never have Catholicism without an implicit, constant, virtual Satanism that accompanies it all the time. And the institution that we see is only half the picture, the other dark half of which, to use a Stephen King phrase, the dark half is the implicit Satanic dimension of the institution, which is just as real as the rest. And I think that what Clive Barker is doing here is he's looking at that other side of it without bringing with him any of the moral judgments that would come from the day world side of it. Yeah, I love all that. And I think, you know, one of the things I know about Hellraiser is that, you know, he didn't at least at at first intend, although it might have changed by the time he wrote a sequel a long time later um, to the Hellbound Heart called The Scarlet Gospels, he didn't intend for it really to be hell. And, you know, it says that in Hellraiser, Pinhead says demons to some angels to others or angels to some demons to others. He's trying to say, at least in these original iterations, like, what if also (laughs) that side of things, that other, that dark half or whatever, doesn't mean that heaven exists. It just means (laughs) there's another version of this Catholic play on things. Now, obviously... My Christian understanding and experience of the world doesn't say that that's true. However, you could have easily within my worldview, my cult understanding of things, gods and counter gods that don't necessarily, you've not ascended to the level of heaven nor even gone into the depths of hell, but there are lots of layers of reality in between this and those ultimate ones, you know, and, and I don't mean this as a reality statement of just the in the world of the book the catholic church is not representing ultimate reality any more than the cenobites but you no. are sort of wavering between them whenever you encounter one or the other yeah 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 well what if heaven and hell are just kind of like mirages objective illusions as kant would put it that you get when you're in purgatory <laughs> so there you you have neither an affirmation nor a negation of the aesthetic cosmos that's offered to you by a certain tradition, but simply you realize that it's offering you an aesthetic cosmos in which nothing is ever finally known or knowable or proclaimable. In a way, I mean, he says it quite clearly, Clive Barker does at one point in the book, he says, the Cenobites, he's talking about Frank's tortures, because Frank quickly realizes once he's opened the box and the Cenobites have taken him, he quickly realizes that the Cenobites' idea of pleasure do not match his own at all. <laughs> this is going to be really, really shitty. And uh, he writes, they called it pleasure and perhaps they meant it. He's talking about the Cenobites. Perhaps not. 
It was impossible to know with these minds. They were so hopelessly, flawlessly ambiguous. It's so beautiful. And I'm also reminded of, you know, since you're bringing up the sound of music, Robert Wise, the director, also directed The Haunting, which is one of the best horror movies ever. But the most persistent sound in that is just a banging, a banging, a banging that keeps happening. And what could be the dark half of the sound of music, but the sound of a haunting, you know, these noises that send a shiver through you, but are actually completely arrhythmic that are, have nothing to do with any kind of like sort of astral emotive enjoyment that you enter into, but rather are just utter disruption, you know, the the sound of haunting. It should have been called. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. It's true. And then, and it brings us again to the ambiguity of the bells in Hellbound Heart, where those who open the box hear these bells. And at first they think, oh, is there a service? It's midnight. Is there a like a midnight mass somewhere? Or, but no, it's not the bells of the church. It's not hell's bells. It's not ACDC either. It's the bells of a kind of infinite purgatory, which is inseparable from the forces of desire that constitute it. It's so deep ambiguity. I, I didn't want to imply that Clive Barker is giving us like kind of an inverted Catholic myth, but rather that he's using a symbol to show us precisely the ambiguity or the ambiguousness of all symbol making and how caught up in desire it always is, right? I think one of the interesting things as well that we're sort of talking about here is the the revelation of the perversity of Christianity, which of course is something Zizek writes about quite mm-hmm. a bit. Whenever Easter, it's almost Easter when we're recording this, but whenever Easter comes around, you know, and people are like, oh, zombie Jesus, or they tell those jokes that are like, you know, Jesus was well hung or, you know, whatever. And I don't think I've ever even really made a joke like that, not because I find it offensive, but because I find it so like absurdly feeble. Cause I'm like, you think your joke is perverse? Have you read the fucking Bible? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like, don't have sex with a horse. Like the, <laughs> the like, the, like the most like absolutely perverse stuff. And you cannot assail that with something that's more transgressive and perverse than that itself. It just is so yeah. beyond. And so like you were saying, the way you put it that Stephen King would do is center it around the object. Like we'd invert it, but actually it's so inverted and perverse and crazed in its own way already. Yeah. You can't pervert it. You can only make it uh, in some ways it's truthful self or it's more horrifyingly relatable self in a way, in some ways, like the Cenobites are far more relatable than Christ, right? And that's pretty messed up. And it's why also a lot of the sequels are really flat, including the more recent uh, Hellraiser movie, because there is none of that longing. There is none of that. It's not about desire. It's not about anything. It's just about the monster. The object. Yeah. It's just about the object. And The only real object I want, you know, the object of the box is fucking brilliant. And I want to talk about that. But that's only part of this whole. But that's why it's so. the box is so brilliant, because what is a box? It's an object that hides an object. So it's an object that's unattainable. You can't. It's what like another Zizekism is that the great pleasure. How does he put it? 
he's talking about Kinder Eggs. And you buy the Kinder Egg because there's something in it. But the something in it is a piece of junk that you literally throw away. So the object in the Kinder Egg is just your excuse. I'm acquiring something. Your excuse to simply enjoy the shitty chocolate. So you're giving yourself an object in order to enjoy, you're giving yourself a, a dutifully- A dutiful object of consumption. A dutiful object of consumption in order to simply enjoy. And it's the same thing with what he says, Catholicism. It gives you a moral injunction so that you can know you're sinning and then just enjoy the sin. <laughs> That's the perversity of it. But yeah, anyways, I think Phil wanted to bring us into a new zone. So let's- um, I want to talk about the film a little bit. A film I had not watched until yesterday. It's one of that long list of films that I have unaccountably left out of my education until now. This film came out the year I went to college, and I very distinctly remember having conversations with friends, one conversation in particular with Ken Woods, who's now quite a well-known conductor, about this film. And Ken told me, this is really different kind of horror film. I mean, it's like, because it's suggesting the nearness of pleasure and pain of what you want most and what you want least. And this idea of a singularity, some kind of like incomprehensible black hole where desire turns inside out, turns into something else, something fundamentally unknowable. And I remember thinking, Ooh, that sounds interesting. And then I never watched it, but I was struck. You say you wanted to talk about the box. Let us talk about the box because I found this film, among other things, an incredibly efficient little machine of storytelling. If you've ever read that book by David Mamet, which I think is called On Directing Film, he has a very strict idea of what constitutes good storytelling in film. And for him, it has very little to do with the words that you put in anyone's mouth. It doesn't have to do with having a camera follow a main character around like a faithful dog. He's interested in uninflected shots juxtaposed, where you just show something and you make a cut and you show something else. And through the juxtaposition, we understand something. So like a great example is when Larry and Julia come to the house for the first time and it's moldy, it's decrepit. And Larry is kind of trying to sell it to Julia. And Poor Larry. Such a pathetic little guy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Anyways. So bad for Larry. <laughs> um, and she's smoking a cigarette. And her response to Larry's hopeful patter about what this house could be for them is to throw her cigarette down on the floor and stub it out. And I was like, ooh, Mamet would approve. It tells you so much about her that she's neglectful or thoughtless, even pointlessly destructive. Like who puts a cigarette out on the wooden floor of their own house? She's telling us that it's like it's she doesn't think it's her house. It's a way of telling us exactly what she thinks of Larry. Exactly. Um, yeah. And finally, spring loading into it, the image of the cigarette, which. OK, so like if I want to really understand just me like the way I am. If I want to understand that weird point of convergence between pleasure and pain, what is desired and what is least desired to me, the cigarette is perfect. Uh, notice the loving way I am air smoking right now. 
the folks at home can't see this. It's the body memory of smoking a cigarette back in the day. Nobody knows how to smoke anymore. You, you notice that? You see people smoking. They look like they're in death row or something. They look like they're just sucking back one last hit before the electric chair. Uh, smoking. They, look like they look like Stephen King having sex. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, there, there's something. If every, every drag of a cigarette is like a little piece of your death and it's delicious. When my dad died, when I received word that my father had died, I remember the thing that I did was to go outside and smoke a cigarette and it was the most delicious and perfect smoke I ever had in my entire life. This is decades ago. I haven't smoked in literally decades. But I remember feeling the nearness of death in sensual satisfaction that being hallucinatorily clear. Anyway, all of this is to say the mere act of stubbing a cigarette out on a floor becomes like a perfect little storytelling moment, right? And this film is full of them. And the very opening where the first thing we see is the box sitting on a table with a glass of absinthe yeah. on the left of the frame and the dirtiest fingernails you've ever seen in your life. Dirty, sweaty hand. He must have like sprayed his hand with something to make it glisten in that particular loathly way, uh, yeah. sliding a pile of filthy looking hundred dollar bills. And the sound of the voice of the man selling the box. What is your pleasure? Yeah. And the distant sound of a kind of like um, vaguely Near Eastern sort of setting. And, and yeah. you can see in the background vague black robed forms and... You know, everything that tells you you're in an Indiana Jones type situation here, right? <laughs> or John and, Carpenter, yeah. Yeah, and just everything focusing around the box. Voices of figures we don't even see. It's the box. The first prick of the membrane, <laughs> right? The first tear in reality is the appearance of this box. Wow. Yeah. What a great way to talk about it because it's reminding me of something Godard would do a lot where he would have people talking and not show their heads. And that's what we get in the beginning. Even There's no reason to not really just show us who they are to begin with. It, um, there is a reason, but like the focus is the box. The focus yeah. is the fact that we're going to enter that void of the sort of black circle on the top. And then we see him solving it and we get it very quickly. We get what's happening with it, which also seems like startling to me. We should be confused. It makes sense to us. And when he's solving it and then later when Kirsty is solving it, the shapes transforming, you get this idea that, okay, I don't know how to solve this. This is a different kind of puzzle. I just am going to have to sort of work my way in my hands around it and figure it out, whatever that means. And then when it starts moving on its own, that's also very confusing. How is that happening? In the book, there's the sort of bells that chime. And there's a little bit of that in the movie as well. But there's the bells that chime as he, the little tinkling sounds. Of it's it. a music box in the book. It actually, it was made, I love the lore around it. It was made by a French a maker of singing birds named Le Marchand, yeah, who made this. And it's one of a few items, one of which is kept in the Vatican, we're told, that allow access to the uh, 
into the schism, I think it's called the schism. Yeah. And one of them's like uh, an origami technique, you know, <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. they're so cool. Yeah. And the idea is like when you're absorbed in a puzzle and you start solving it and it starts moving, you can really feel like what would happen there. There's a book called The Zealoter by Mark Hetzel, which is a sort of classic occult text about someone encountering all this sacred art and occult art. It's nonfiction, but it's fiction, but it's nonfiction, you know. And in the back, there's a series of symbols. And the author of the book says, you know, the trick with these symbols is you have to turn them into each other. And you don't exactly know what he means, but when you meditate on these symbols and you start to try to transform one into the other, it's the kind of feeling I get when I think about someone trying to solve this box. You mm. said it much more French than I am saying Lamarckin's box, but I think I spelled, I've seen it spelled differently, but uh, yeah. your pronunciation is I'm sure right, JF. But when trying to solve Lamarckin's box, it's the idea is an altered state of consciousness, a sort of difficult shifting of thought and feeling and action are all happening at once. And it's the feeling I also get doing, if anybody's ever done non-Euclidean geometry or projective geometry, where you form shapes by forming the space around them. This is very popular in Waldorf schools. Kids are taught how to do this. It's a completely different mental process hmm. when you do a geometry where in fact, parallel lines meet at the infinitely distant point. And so mm. that's what's happening when the box is being used. And it, it would make sense to me that aligning a strange form of action, a strange form of longing and a strange form, or I'm sorry, I should be saying weird on this podcast, a weird form of action, a weird form of longing <laughs> and a weird form Thank of you. thinking are all <laughs> in concert that something would open you know, and that this box would be the the focal point for it. And I have a little bit more to say about the box, but I'll, I'll step back and just say more stuff about the please, box. Go this on. is awesome. Well, the other boxes that come to mind for me are not the ones in this book or even the ones that show up in the second Hellraiser movie or whatever. It's the box in Mulholland Drive and the box in Twin yeah. Peaks that Catherine Martell gets. Uh, yeah. I mean, the one that Catherine Martell gets in Twin Peaks ends up just having a key that connects to a bomb but it feels much more mystical than that and then that's carried out in Mulholland Drive where Rita's trying to you know figure out what this box is for and this key and when she opens it the universe turns everything flips yeah and yeah. the box falls to the floor as though she disappeared yeah I love that scene these dimensional puzzles whether it's in the Zelator or Hellbound or Hellraiser or Twin Peaks or Mulholland Drive I think if we have that kind of evasive, that inward move that's evasive of our normal patterning and also evades our normal movements, suddenly we find ourselves somewhere else completely. Yes, I agree. It reminds me of, um, this is a little thing I bring up once in a while, that in The Shining, the mountains of Colorado are inside the hotel. Mm. You know, and there's that great shot in The Shining. I don't know if it's a great shot. It might be actually a weirdly clumsy shot. Kubrick and his hyper-perfectionism sometimes 
overcorrected or overworked things to the point where they started to look weird. There's a shot at the beginning. It's a helicopter shot at the end of The Shining where you see the hotel against the backdrop of the mountains. But the hotel and the mountains are the same color. So you actually can't quite see the hotel. It's kind of like camouflaged in the mountains. And it's supposed to be revealing the hotel. It, it seems like an unsuccessful attempt at an establishing shot. But I think, in fact, it's quite successful in that it blurs the line between outside and inside. We are already inside the Overlook Hotel. We have always lived in the castle, as uh, Shirley Jackson might put it. And when we see the box, you see the box at the beginning, first shot. This is giving us a picture of where we are, because the question, of course, you're shown a symbol, you're shown a closed box. Your first, the question is, what's inside the box? Well, we are inside the box. It's like the map at the beginning of a fantasy novel. You get the map of the kingdom, then you turn the page and you start. That box is a map of the kingdom, and we're inside it. And so it's a blurring of outside and inside that happens right at the threshold, right at the first gesture of the film. And in a sense, it really does fulfill its function of breaking the surface of the real, giving us that initial line of flight into the universe of the film. Yeah, it's really cool. I'm sorry, I'm dragging us back to the novella, away from the film. The description of the music is particularly interesting. So at first we think it's an ordinary music box as we're reading the opening pages of this. Encouraged by his success, Frank proceeded to work on the box feverishly. So he gets like one little bit, something goes click, and the seemingly seamless polished surface of the box begins to undo. But there's multiple levels as this thing keeps unfolding impossibly. Even considered as a material object, it seems somehow to be bigger on the inside than the outside. And the sense of the box is something that contains far more than a box could possibly contain comes out even in the description of the music. Even as it contains nothing. There's no object inside it. It's just more, yeah. more and more box. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like a tesseract. So yeah. I'm, I'm just going to keep reading this. Encouraged by his success, Frank proceeded to work on the box feverishly, quickly finding fresh alignments of fluted slot and oiled peg, which in their turn revealed further intricacies. And with each solution, each new half twist or pull, a further melodic element was brought into play. So earlier... His first success was crowned by a musical mechanism, quote, which began to tinkle a short rondo of sublime banality. But now, with each new solution, quote, a further melodic element was brought into play. The tune counterpointed and developed until the initial caprice was all but lost in ornamentation. I have no trouble imagining what that's like. I mean, in fact, it's a technique that composers for film music often will do to give you a sense of something dreamy becoming a nightmare. You'll start off with like a tinkle of the music box and then the underscore will start adding things to it until it becomes this cacophonous nightmare. This is a durable trope, not only in horror fiction, but also in horror reality, like people's experiences of the other world. I've been reading an awful lot of UFO lore recently, and one way that Twin Peaks is actually quite accurate to how people report other world encounters and UFO encounters is... Um, that there's often a kind of anticipatory tremor, a feeling that something is happening, something weird is going on, that there's often buzzes or hisses or 
beeps or even the sound of music coming seemingly from everywhere and nowhere. But sound always plays this kind of role of telling us that we are passing a threshold, even when everything around us looks entirely the same. And so I thought it was cool how Very cool. that quality of like bigger on the inside than the outside and that sense of a kind of unstoppable unfolding into sense, like the Frank shortly going to be overwhelmed by sensory input, boiled down just to that musical detail, which unfortunately is almost absent in the film. Although the film does present its own musical or sonic threshold moments. But anyway, sorry, dude. What yeah, it say? does it differently. But this is a huge testament to Clive Barker's skill as an artist and his awareness of how mediums different media work differently. There's a medium specificity, to use Clement Greenberg's term, to the box as it manifests in each of the iterations of the story, the film and the, and the book. In the book, the box has to be worked out. Frank actively must solve it. And when, when later, when um, Kirstie solves the box in the book, the only reason she can do it so quickly is because there are blood traces that are revealing the outlines of the little sections in the puzzle. And so she can do it more easily. But the, in the book, it's quite clear that Frank has to work at it. Whereas in the movie, the box, you just have to touch the right part and then it starts to do its own thing. It animates and it's very effective in the film. It's very different. This is medium specificity. Again, uh, here we're seeing the box as a synecdoche of the work, of the artwork, right? The box is mm -hmm. the artwork. We are mm -hmm. inside the box. When you read a text, you have to do the work. You have to read each word. You have to solve the puzzle. Oh, yeah, In a film, saying. you sit and something's happening automatically. The box functions perfectly in tandem with the medium in both cases. Yeah, that's really, <laughs> that's a great find there. And I, I love that you've teased that out. I mean, I think also like in the book, he realizes his mistake when they arrive. Frank realizes his mistake when they arrive. In the movie, because the box is working automatically, there's a kind of inevitability once he's really started. And it's like much more like the record, for example, in Evil Dead, where they're listening to it and it's like, now yeah. you've let it free or whatever. Yeah. You're like, yeah. Yeah. fuck, by the time you've seen it, it's too late, you know? And so I think that also lines up because you you can't really show the moment of error really in the movie in the same way. But if you give that sense of, inevitability when it's like, oh, it's just sort of solving itself. I want to just say a few more things about the box and then the sound and the music and the sound of music. Um, <laughs> in the novel, the room itself has an alluring power to Julia. So in the movie, one thing that I've heard people complain about with the movie is like, so she and Frank loved fucking. And so now she's going to kill people for him. It makes no sense. And she uses a hammer in the novel or the novella. You can tell that the room itself is the box. Like you said, you're inside mm. shit. Yeah, of course. The space of the box. And it's very palpable that she's being drawn literally in, but also just drawn in to that intensity of desire. And she uses a knife to kill people, which is just a much different kind of, which she's slashing throats instead of hitting people over the head and dropping the hammer terrified as she does in the movie or horrified by what she's done. Instead, you see that it's completely overtaking her and it just makes much more sense. 
I love when the in both I love both representations of Frank coming up through the floorboards when he's oh my god yeah in the movie it's the birth it's the uh, meiosis of the cells and it's just all coming together in this gruesome liquefied disgusting way that really puts us in touch with the horror of the body in the novel it's this sort of emerging appearance again there's a twin peaks thing for me here where the spinal stem and the brain and the eye it's reminding me of the sort of sycamore tree of non-existence in oh the, yes in the news uh season twin peaks or or dr manhattan's venous nervous structure appearing yeah, in, yeah. in the watchman you know with the sound i just want to say like <laughs> so my friend and I, i'm I, he's a huge fan of your show ben chasney who's band and project name sounds like a clive barker order of the gash thing six organs of of admittance (laughs) (laughs) you know co-wrote the new sort of theme song for my show but he has sent us the coil version of the music for the movies so apparently clive barker worked with the band coil to make the music for the movies and some of the sounds I've, I've listened to it. Some of the sounds that from those coil songs actually appear in the film's special effects, which is really amazing, mm. but they ultimately went with a different score. And I'm actually really glad they did not because I don't like coil. I really love coil and they're brilliant, but it has a kind of retro feel that, would be fine now, but wouldn't have endured the dismissal of those kinds of sounds in the late 90s or whatever. And so part of the film's longevity, I think, depends on it being having at least one grounding element that seems like easy for people. I quite like that score. And I'm not familiar with the composer. I think it's very, I don't know what Phil as a, as a music expert thought of it, but I think it's a very good score. And I, I think it adds a note, a, a classical, in the film sense, a classic film note to it that absorbs it into a tradition of horror filmmaking, which it otherwise would risk kind of simply appearing as a kind of a far out outlier. It makes the film mainstream enough in order to increase its perversity, ultimately, I think. I, yeah. I love the, the choice. And I, yeah, Coil would have been great. I'm glad that they use Coil's music in the sound editing as opposed to the soundtrack. I think that's a great move. Yeah, I didn't know that. Well, there's one particular cue that I really love. The first victim, the first of Julia's victims, where she goes to a bar and is drinking alone, waiting for somebody to come up to her. The cue is clearly a paraphrase or kind of very much modeled on a piece by Bella Bartok, music for strings, percussion, and Celeste, and particularly the slow movement of that work. And interestingly enough, that very piece is used in The Shining. Mm. The moment that I remember it being used, I think it's used more than once, is um, when Jack is sitting with Danny and telling him how he would never hurt him. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so what you said, JF, about how the film grounds, or rather the score grounds the film in a particular kind of cinematic tradition, that particular cue, it's doing so quite directly, connecting it to another film and more generally to, I won't say conventional tropes of horror film music, but, you know, a whole world of horror film 
affect yeah. in in music. Yeah. And that's part of the genius of Clive Barker is that he managed to create truly transgressive work in a mainstream setting. And yeah. that's what makes him so special, I find. I mean, just, just to talk about, you know, that he wrote and directed this film is, I mean, that's that's really incredible yeah. as well. And that, that he did it so successfully as someone who's not really a film director for the most part. You know, I mean, he had directed plays and written plays, but I mean, it's just, it's really something. I really want to talk about the Cenobites because we haven't. Oh, let's. I feel like we would count this episode a waste of an opportunity if we did not talk about the Cenobites. So just to say, like, they still look good to our yeah, eyes now, right? Which is the sort of weird tunnel crawling beast. Oh, yeah. Looks a little <laughs> animatronic, looks clunky now. It still, I think, brings <laughs> something interesting to the movie, but it. It doesn't look as, you know, um, frightening or as real. There's a shot where you can see the bicycle under it. You can see the, yeah, yeah, for just a couple of seconds. <laughs> but the Cenobites, I agree, are a huge success for sure. They yeah. they are. And just, you know, so to say, one, that they still look great, but also no matter what they've done, you still kind of want to meet him a little bit which is really fucked like <laughs> to think about how awful and a part of it is i forget which one of you said are like they're kind of the good guys almost you know thinking about they do have this moment where there's a kind of fairness um then they betray it or they just you know fuck with it in the in the movie at least in the book they ultimately turn in some ways turn the Kirsty into the box's keeper, which is really intense. But in the movie, they say, yeah, just give us Frank and we'll we'll leave you alone. And then they kind of go for her anyway. Can I say just parenthetically, that was the only part of the film I did not like. Shooting lasers out of the box and, you know. It was 1987. You needed that. You needed that. <laughs> I know. I know. But I, I find it so fascinating that I still kind of, I still kind of feel drawn to them. And that is, I mean, I don't ever really want to meet them, but the fact that <laughs> they can create such fascination in the viewer and that they have definitely the order of the gash, they're called in the book, but that they have this, like this regalness to them that mm -hmm. you really feel that they're going to tell you a truth. And I yeah. think that that's, part of it is that they do have a real truth to offer. And that is, I mean, that's also very frightening. The term Cenobite is, uh, again, a reference to the history of Christianity. Cenobite were what the desert monks were called in early Christianity. The ones, the and, ones that lived together at any rate. Yeah. The not ones the, who live together. Not the yeah. solitaries. Cenobite is from two Greek words. I learned this from reading Wikipedia, from Koinus and Bios. Um, common and life. So they're monks that maintained a common life. Yeah. So these are monks, essentially, we're told. But they're monks, whereas the traditionally monks are conceived as abstaining from desire, extinguishing desire. These are monks who intensify and pursue desire. So it's a left-hand path monastic tradition is what we're saying. We're seeing Gnostics of the left-hand path who are doing the same thing that the, it's ostensibly, I mean, essentially, they're mystics in the same... A way that the ascetic monks are, but these are hedonist monks. 
And so they appear to us as people who have seen beyond, people who have received some kind of gnosis that radiates from them. You just feel it. And that is done really successfully. And I can't imagine that a director who wasn't Clive Barker could have remained sensitive to that while also designing those costumes and giving us essentially what were monsters. I mean, I remember the Fangoria issue, you know, on Hellraiser, where you saw all the pictures of how they did the makeup and like Pinhead goofing around in the kitchen. They were 80s style horror movie monsters. But again, they were more. There's an excess there that tips over into a kind of sanctity. It's very Arthur Mackin, the whole thing. So the sanctity and sin being just twin ecstasies in a universe that admits both. And they belong to that, but it's precisely in being so much about sin, quote unquote, that they are elevated to something equal to the sanctity of the monks who would extinguish desire as opposed to pursue it. Left-hand path. Yeah. You know, um, I was originally proposing that we also talk about Hellraiser 2, but I'm glad we didn't because obviously we've already gone on so much and we haven't even really scratched the surface. But in Hellraiser 2, which is the stories by Clyde Barker, but it's directed by Tony Randall, who I think helped with the first Hellraiser, you see that the Cenobites, and I think Clyde Barker considers that to be a real part of the mythos rather than some of the later films, which are just kind of offshoots. There's actually a real collaborative and Julia is a central figure in it. But you see that the Cenobites were themselves people that used the boxes or whatever processes and then became what they were. And you wonder why them, wonder why them and not Frank, what exactly have they done to Frank? They've torn his soul apart, you know, is what they say, which mm. is also horrifying because one of the things I talk a lot about with horror movies, and I, I've said about my own novel, is that so many horror movies are focused on death, but you know that's it. I mean, so what? So you die. Okay, so the thing that was going to happen to you anyway is the thing the monster does to you. But in this, they tear your soul apart. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, they'll remake you and throw you into pain again and remake you and throw you into pain again. I mean, it's much more like the wheel of life itself. And so it's really horrifying because they are reaching, <laughs> they're after your soul. Yeah, exactly. And bringing the bodily presence and sensuality to the soul, which is quite unbearable. If you think about it, if you think about if you could bring the bodily realm into the soul realm, I mean, it would be really horrific. It would be. Yeah. Oh, no, that's a great point. That's why I find Anti-Oedipus to be a horror book, because that's exactly what it's trying to do. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah. One thing I liked about Hellraiser is that you don't get the thing that I presume happened in the later installments of over-explaining and giving us like stories about all these guys, making the films to some extent about the Cenobites. You hardly see them. They appear at the very beginning and then right around, actually, I, I, I idly tried to figure out if this happened at the golden section because I was looking at the slider on my uh, Amazon player and I'm like, that looks like it's like where the Cenobites reappear is kind of, it's not really the golden section, but it's close. We can round it up to golden section. There's a certain sense of like very careful, precise, decided placement of the Cenobites in such a place as to cause 
maximum um, effect psychic penetration in the mind of the viewer. And the first time when Frank is torn to pieces, there's this marvelous scene that's rather quiet and static of the room with all these hanging chains and gobbets of flesh on the ground and this rotating square pillar that has like hooks and chains and chains more gobbets of flesh. And, yeah, yeah. Like slowly rotating and it's kind of wrapped in barbed wire maybe. And there's a scene where one of the Cenobites, I think it's Pinhead. I'm not sure actually, now that I'm saying this, collects a few of these gobbets of flesh and kind of pokes them into the shape of Frank's torn up face. And um, there's something about the kind of idle curiosity. Oh, actually, it's a complete, I won't even say idle curiosity. It's a completely unreadable emotion. An unreadable emotion as the fragments of a human being are kind of moved around like puzzle pieces. You can actually see, not explained, they don't ruin it by telling you what's going on. Just an implication of exactly what you were talking about, Connor, like, this is a chamber for the tearing apart, not only of bodies, but souls and a kind of obscure technique whereby those sundered pieces are fitted together again and again and again. Some kind of technology that we see inscribed on the very flesh of the Cenobites. That's what's so fascinating is seeing how people have these, or for formerly people, beings have made of the integrity of the human form another puzzle box. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you bring up that pillar because just to JF's point about them being, you know, monastic, that's the Buddhist prayer pillar that you oh, see. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. it's this, it's again, this inverted. So you find a different religion being sort of pulled in, which makes sense. In the book, weirdly, the first thing they say is what city is this? Which I find so strange. I've been, mm. just been like, I didn't, of course, notice that like before in my reading when I read it years ago, but reading it again, I was like, what, this is so odd. And it kind of makes sense when I think about it in this form of them being connected in some ways to all these different religious traditions that we know about, but taking on this dark form of them or or maybe it's not as dark as the forms that exist yeah exactly (laughs) i think also in the movie one of the things when you say it's like it's such a well-functioning machine we could stop and ask a lot of questions about how things are working why is it that a drop of blood brings him back in the book there's a little bit more explanation he's not actually again his soul is torn apart and corporeally, like we're kind of what exactly happens, but there's some sort of weird thing about he like comes onto the floor before he's yeah. Yeah. torn asunder. And somehow that dried semen is like leaves a remnant of his physical. So that he can come back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like a Jurassic yeah. Park, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> recomposition of the, you know, fly in amber or whatever it is. But in the book, I mean, the movie, there's none of that. In the movie, you don't quite know why Julia would go to these lengths. In the movie, you know, you don't exactly know why the Cenobites have turned. And we don't know about this figure 
who we should talk about in a a second, this extra figure, this extra layer that happens in the movie, but it all makes sense anyway. It doesn't matter at all. And it's not even like what my friend, Kevin Williamson, who wrote, he wrote scream and he wrote these other movies. He said, we call it the ham sandwich problem. He's like, if someone gets up during the show or the movie and they don't think about the weird gap that you've left or the hole until they're getting the ham sandwich from the fridge and they're eating it, we don't care. As long as they can get to the fridge and get the ham sandwich, nobody gives a shit. So he's like, so, but if they get back to it, (laughs) if, if they think about it before they get the ham sandwich, then we have a problem, but it's not even that it all actually coheres. We just don't quite know how. And in that way, again, there's a David Lynch sort of feeling where we don't know. And we have the feeling that we have when we watch Twin Peaks or Blue Velvet or Mahone Drive, where we think, if I knew, I'd actually be in trouble. And if I seek how, I'll be in trouble. And what these movies are telling me is, you go looking for answers, you're going to get fucked up. So uh, do you want to do that as viewer of this movie? Are you sure? Are you sure? You know, <laughs> it's, so- like, it's like the movie itself is a puzzle box and we're seeing it in pieces and um, it's up to each of us to put it together. And God help you if you succeed. <laughs> yeah. Or even go for it. You know what I mean? Like, do you even want to look? And so, I mean, I, and I, I think that that's so brilliant, but I do want to talk about, I was saying to you guys before off the air, like this Alan Moore uh, figure <laughs> right, <laughs> in a pet store that Kirsty works at just briefly in one scene. I love that she yeah. works at a pet store and yeah. Are there like monkeys screaming in the pet store, which is also like really funny and or maybe not, but I think there were monkeys screaming that it it rings a bell. Yeah. Some dumb kid knocking on the glass that a boa constrictor is behind. Yes. And those were pet stores that, you know, when I was a kid and Jeff, you I must be the same age because we're both 10 when this movie came out. So like we had pet stores that were like, they had sharks. There was a pet store that had a mountain lion in it. Like where I grew up, like great pet stores were just pet stores were off the chain. Yes, exactly. We don't have pet stores like that anymore. That was something this film brought back to me. I'm like, Oh, those were really bizarre. It's so strange that those places existed. And so, you know, this guy is like showing up in the movie, shows up a bunch of times with this sort of scraggly beard. And then, you know, picks up the box at the end this emissary who's a flying skeletal dragon and it's i mean what a what a stunning way to end the film another surprise yeah yeah i love it he they're called in the mythos whereas pinhead and his friends are called the cenobites those guys are called Eremites from what I saw. And Eremites were monks who lived alone. So they are like the Cenobites, but their goal is to guard the box is what I understood and to make sure that it's always allowed to circulate. There's a great Marxist commodity theory reading of this film about the box that we could indulge in, but now we're already two hours in. Oh, you got to <laughs> say it. You got to say it. I, I, it's not worked out, but I just got to say that it's there. Let's bookmark it for another day. I was just, I was reading about Marx's theory of the commodity, which is just a fascinating, tiny little chapter in in volume one of Capital. And I just love it. It's metaphysics pretending to be economics, which is the only metaphysics, only economics I'm willing to read. But this character of the Eremite reminds me, have you ever seen Kislowski's Decalogue? 
It's fantastic. And it has the same figure, the same character. This homeless man, bearded, scraggly, looks like he just crawled out of a desert, eating crickets. By the way, eating crickets isn't eating locusts and wild honey. Isn't that what John the Baptist does in the desert? He eats locusts. This is a clear, this guy is another one of these holy people, these initiates of the gash, but out there in the world, living in the desert of the city. In other words, out on the street with the homeless. And yet that's where he can play his part in the mystical order that is implicit in the film. So I love that figure, that homeless figure, that that witness on the sidelines who at the end comes and grabs the box. It's a little weird, I'll admit, when he turns into this kind of a skeletal pterodactyl at the end and flies off. I'm like, okay, this is another movie altogether, but <laughs> I will not put it. I love that touch. I just absolutely, it's very Sam Raimi. It's very, uh, I don't know. I, I thought it was a great, great way to end the film. I think for me to say here, maybe towards the end of our chat, it doesn't have to be the end, but I just want to make sure I say this, which is for me, when I was talking about Clive Barker at the top of this, what you guys are both reminding me of to articulate is that a lot of people get their theory and their critical lens from reading philosophers, from reading theologians, and from you know, reading like cultural studies. And I love all that stuff. I love all of it. But for me, the deeper theory, the deeper theoretical lens will always be Clive Barker, will always be other writers that and, and artists that are doing something kind of similar. And I know that that's a huge part of the spirit of your show. It's a way, you know, we're talking about Cenobites, Eremites, we're talking about the way puzzles work. We're talking about these beings and the kinds of uh, revelations they have and the revelations that they cancel out. And I think for me, that kind of realness that can only exist in story and can only exist in stories in master storytellers is my theory. You know, beyond seeing anything about querying or whatever Marxist or psychoanalytic theories lie in this, that's all so fascinating. I'm glad we're touching on all those points, but they only exist because they can spin out of something that is so not just vast and again, maybe Stephen King is vast, but Clive Barker is deep, as you say, this deep well. And it goes down and down and down. And there's so many layers that can become terrifyingly transparent to each other and to you as the reader or the, the viewer. So that's, for me, if we look into these movies and this book and these other works, we can really find a theoretical lens um, that is in Susan Sontag's way of saying, you know, an erotics of art that informs us in ways that are not just the ways that we're used to being informed by. And it's so profound. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Visit the Weird Studies subreddit and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>